I was to give you a blank sheet of paper and give you one minute to write down everything you would like God to answer in prayer, anything you'd like God to do for you, what would you write down? 60 seconds, you can write down anything you want. Now, for some of you, that just raises like an anxiety attack right away. Just the notion of that exercise just kind of freaks you out. So let me say you have 24 hours. Take a pad and write down everything you'd like God to do for you in 24 hours. It would be an interesting list. Now, you cannot write down, God, sanctify this sin of mine. I want to live in sin, so make it okay for me to live in sin. But you can write in anything you'd like God to answer for you in prayer, to do for you, to complete for you, to make your life the way you want it to be. Anything at all. If we were to do that exercise and then step back on our list and look at it, we might have a little different perspective on what we're asking of God. Or perhaps easier and a little more telling, if you looked at someone else's list, you would see very clearly what's motivating them, what their longings are, what they want out of life and out of God. We all have these expectations. We may not articulate them. We may not have written them down and codified them so neatly, but we have them. We expect God to play by a certain set of rules and We expect God to come through for us at certain times. Many good things we ask of him, and we fully believe and hope and expect and long for him to do what we want him to do. It's seen in another fashion in Jeremiah 12, verse 1, and many places in the Bible, where roughly paraphrased, Jeremiah says, uh, God, why did the righteous prosper? What's the other side of that? Why aren't we prospering? Why aren't your people, Israel, who are called by your name prospering, but the unrighteous, the wicked are prospering? The psalmist laments the same. Many places in the Bible. Why do the evil prosper? The American version of that. Why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? Again, we may not tease it out and make it as crystal clear as that, but In our quiet time, in our candor, in our vulnerable places, we expect God to do certain things for us. And we sort of fold our mental arms and kind of wait for him and huff at him a little bit. And and, and they may be good things. They may be things that God could even bless and use, but we all have them. We may not articulate them, but we all have them. Peter expressed one. If you open your Bible to Luke chapter 18, verse 28, we'll look at his. Peter asks the master a question. And the question is said in a context of three stories, and we'll try to put it together in Luke's narrative today to make some sense of it. Peter expresses a similar sentiment in Luke chapter 18, verse 28. Peter said, Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. And he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. We've left everything. Now, remember the context. On the heels of the rich young ruler 
who has everything, a self-made man who can't quite get his arms around who this Jesus is. We've got Peter asking the question, oh, what about us? We left everything to follow you. Now, we always want to be careful not to be too hard on the disciples. Uh, someday we will see the 11. And I think there's a way, and we better be careful what we say about Peter. Because you're going to see him one day. And he was an apostle, and you and, you and I weren't. So just remember that. That's for free. Peter asked questions a lot of us would love to have been asked, but didn't have the courage, perhaps, to ask. What about us? I don't think it's out of line. I don't think it's completely selfish, but it's a good question. We left everything. We left what we were entitled to, what was coming to us, a wife, a home, a family. Please note, this is not a sanction to abandon your family. It was a response to a call, and Jesus says as much, for the sake of the kingdom of God. If you've left, and if there's a question about the home or the family, Jesus expands it in the answer. Look at it again. No one who left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. It must be for the sake of the kingdom of God, not just because I'm going to find myself. And these 11 in particular, Judas, of course, will be the son of perdition and walk away. But for the 11 who followed him, he said, look, you will have more in this life and the life to come than you can imagine, we might paraphrase. The acknowledgement is, yes, they did leave things. Now, there's a promise here folded into it in this life and in the life to come, something to look forward to. Now, unfortunately, self-denial is a part of apostleship. It's a part of a disciple. He or she will have to say no to certain things in our life experience in order to say yes to following Christ. We don't like that in this culture. We don't like it in many cultures. It's not just the West. We, we don't like to deny ourselves. We are of a bigger, better, newer, more mindset. It's very hard for the American believer, much less the Asian or the Indian or other growing cultures, believers to look at the life and not think there's a graduation of bigger, better, newer, more, that acquisition of material stuff, a children, prosperity, a better job, better opportunities, better health, all the future, there's, there, it's, it's part of our, if you will, corrupt DNA. We have the expectation as believers that it will be bigger, better, newer, more. And that's why we get so maudlin and we pray so feverishly when things don't go well. Because something must be wrong. Why do the wicked prosper when your people are being overlooked? Why is that God, that wealthy man have everything? We left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? Part of the solution is a definition of blessing. Again, I've, I've said this many times. Our mindset in the West is always money, sex, and power, material acquisition, success by the world standard, achievement, how we measure it personally. That's not always, put it this way, just because you have bigger, better, newer, and more does not mean you're blessed because many who don't know Christ have bigger, better, newer, and more. The absence of bigger, better, newer, and more does not mean you are not blessed. And that's hard for us to swallow sometimes. For me, I learned many years ago that comparison was the kiss of death of gratitude. 
If I compare myself to someone who has more, I always want a little more. And I can rationalize a little more when somebody else has it. I never compare myself to someone who has less and think, oh, I'm so much better off. Because that's just who I am. I know you're more spiritual. I'm just telling you who I am. I don't compare myself to people that have less and think, I am so blessed and fortunate. I compare myself to people who are more successful in my view and go, how come I don't have those things? How come I haven't achieved that station in life or whatever the case may be? I don't need anything until I go to Costco. (laughs) And then I need everything in very large quantities to feel good and important. I don't need anything until I go to a mall. I don't need any clothes until I see someone that has something I don't have or I kind of like or that shines or glimmers or looks a little cooler. I know that's hard to imagine, as boring as I dress. But anyway, (laughs) comparison is the kiss of death of gratitude. So what's blessing? Blessing takes lots of forms. Yes, there are material blessings in life, and they're fine and good if handled properly. But there are blessings we miss. The apostles will find out, long, not long after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, they will find out a new blessing that will blow their minds. We will call it by the cliche community. They will call it the body of Christ, the church. And between Acts 1 and Acts 4, this thing explodes. And they will be closer than brothers I was in Dallas the last three weekends flying back and forth, uh, filling a pulpit for a friend of mine who was taking some time off. And um, I hate to travel, but I love going to Dallas because Cindy and I have friendships that are 30 plus years old back there. And so I got to hang with some of my friends that are really closer than a brother. One in particular, we've known each other now for 31 years. We have the same sense of humor. We like the same food the same films, the same books. We're both a little bit geekish in our computer world. We spent three hours working on his wife's computer and had a great time. I mean, I know for some of you, you think that's just really sick. Well, uh, both of our wives think the same of, of him and me, so you're in good company. But I love this guy. He knows my secrets. I know his. If he had a problem, I'd be there tomorrow and vice versa. And it's been that way for 31 years. I've seen him lose fortunes. I've seen him gain fortunes. He's seen us go through all kinds of troubles and trials, and he's the brother I never had. I've got about six of those guys in my life who would take a bullet for me and I for them. You know what? I don't care if I'm eating at a restaurant that costs several hundred dollars for a meal or eating a gut bomb double bacon cheeseburger with extra jalapenos at Five Guys. I will come out both feeling full It's whom I'm with that makes the difference. I'd rather eat the hamburger with my buddies than a really stuffy situation where I can't put my elbows on the table and use a toothpick. I mean, that's just who I am. It's who I am with, right? And the same is true for you. We've all been in situations that we might say externally are phenomenal blessings, bigger, better, newer, more, and we're completely out of sorts. We're completely uncomfortable. We're looking at our watch going, honey, when can we leave this place? I want to go home. Blessing, to say another way, are the people, and I hate the cliche as much as you do, that we do life together with. It's the people we walk this journey that's difficult and wonderful and complex and ill-fated and 
disappointing and breaks our hearts. And you got to do it with somebody. One of the ways to reframe your view of blessing is to see what scripture calls blessing. And my favorite passage is Ephesians 1, 3. I memorized it years ago. I encourage you to do the same. It will help you reframe your view of that list that you think God would be great if he did. Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places with Christ. Every, not, not most, every spiritual blessing. Or to say another way, what more could he do for you? But because we have our lists, our hopes, our dreams, our expectations, which may not all be bad. Do not hear me throw them under the bus. They may not all be bad. But they must be realigned with what Scripture calls blessing. And blessing is not always bigger, better, newer, more. Yes, you may have prosperity and it may be a blessing. Bless God for that. But if that's all it is, how pathetic. If stuff is how we equate blessing, how pathetic. But if it's to walk with other people who love Christ through thick and thin through joy and sorrow, who know your secrets and still love you, who can give you a dope slap when you need it and a pat on the back when you deserve it. There's nothing better the world can offer you. That is a blessing of knowing the body of Christ. So we erase our contrived view of God and our expectations of who we think he is and how he should act and begin to see and populate those ideas with what scripture does tell us about our father. Well, we now go up to Jerusalem, verse 31. Then he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we are going up. You always go up to Jerusalem, no matter if it's north, south, east, or west. It's not merely elevation, it's to worship. We're going up to Jerusalem and all the things which were written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things and the meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. This is the sixth time in Luke's record that Jesus tells them of going to Jerusalem and what will happen to Christ when he arrives there. This is more uh, detailed than any other record we have, and I want to make several observations about what Jesus is telling awaits him. First of all, you'll notice at the end of verse 31, all that was written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. This is a very important verse for what authenticates the authority and the reliability of our Bibles. Jesus is saying, everything that was written about me, we might say from Genesis 3.15, uh, pick a psalm, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 41, everything that was written about the Messiah, all that the prophets wrote about are going to come true. What's Jesus saying? The word of God from the beginning 
what we would call Genesis, is talking about a culmination in what Christ will accomplish in his death, burial, and resurrection. So Jesus is authenticating the law. He's saying, everything about me is true, and it's going to be fulfilled. Then we are told, he, he refers to himself in verse 31 as a son of man. Now, this is one of Jesus' favorite self-describers, to call himself the son of man. We're going to see three titles in this text alone of how Jesus is identified. He calls himself the son of man. Big subject, simple point here. Why? Because only a man can die. So he identifies himself with Adam, the son of man, not the son of God here, because he must be the son of man in order to go through the scourging, the mocking, the being spat upon, killed, buried, dead, and resurrected. So a self-identifier, all that they said about the son of man And he will be, of course, first Adam, Adam, second Adam, Christ, the man who will die and live again. Now, notice there are seven key verbs in verse 32 and 33. Lloyd is the one who maps out our sermon plan. If it was up to me, I would preach seven sermons on these seven verbs. But Lloyd won't let me. The first one is handed over. The second one is mocked. The third is mistreated. The fourth is spit upon, the fifth is scourged, the sixth is kill, and the seventh is rise again. Handed over, mocked, mistreated, spit upon, scourged, killed, and rise again. Each of them is a very deep theological construct. Let me just tell you a little about the first one. To be handed over is a metaphor, an idiom, of God giving his son through the virgin, Galatians 4.4, at the proper time, to man to kill. He's being handed over to die. When Jesus handles the bread and the fish, when he handles people in the Bible and heals them and touches the leper and the woman touches him and is cured, he has been handed over to humanity. John 1, 1 John 1, the, the, John the apostle, uh, uh, disciple will write, our, we, our eyes saw him, our ears heard him, our, our hands held him. We beheld God's glory with our hands and we hand him to you. Paul will say that which was delivered to him by hand. He took it and he broke it and gave it back to you. And Paul says, I was given something, the gospel, and I give it to you. And this imagery of what God has given to man, man is to give to other men. He's been handed over. The eternal, eternally existing son of man, the son of God, has been handed over for us to kill. So we have a way. Each one of them is an enormous theological feast upon which to study. Notice also he says in verse 32, hand it over to the Gentiles. Now if you remember the movie, The Passion, that Mel Gibson produced a few years ago, it was quite a controversial film. It is based on sort of a a very small uh, Catholic view that doesn't recognize the Pope. It's got some strange theology, but nevertheless, it was an interesting film. In that film, um, the passion is the brutalization of this Jesus. And one of the most controversial parts was he had an Aramaic uh, language, and then it was subtexted in, uh, uh, with English or other languages. And it's the so-called blood curse in Matthew 27. You remember the story well, probably, where Pilate is trying to decide what to do with this Jesus, and he is a spineless, horrible, disgusting person. I'll stop there. And he can't make a yes, yes, and a no, no, and he whims to the crowd. He's a, he's a consummate first century politician to, to try to not make any waves. 
He finds no guilt in this man. He wants to release him, and they want Barabbas. And he says, why? And they have the big dialogue, and the blood curse is where the Jewish leaders in that group say, his blood be upon us and our children. Now, when that was introduced in the Passion, there was this huge uh, fury in the media about anti-Semitism. You can't blame the Jews for killing Jesus. Why do I say all that? Luke gives us some information here, handed over to the Gentiles. You see, the synoptics help us get a, we might say, a 360 picture of what's happening here. Or to say another way, you've got a Roman government, you've got a cauldron of cultures at this time of year around Jerusalem. They're all culpable, or to say it most simply, every one of us had a hand in his death. Jew, Gentile, or any other descriptor you want to use. We all are under the blood curse. We all are guilty of the crucifixion of the Christ. And it's a nice caveat that Luke gives us. Well, they didn't, they didn't comprehend it. The disciples don't get it. And on the one hand, we read this and go, I mean, goodness sakes, guys, this is the sixth time Jesus has told you he's going to go die in Jerusalem. Hello, anybody there? Aren't you listening? Three observations. Number one, it's hidden from them. That they can't quite see it. Number two, when the Holy Spirit comes, as he will tell them in the upper room discourse in John, high priestly prayer, he will tell them that their spirit will reveal all truth to them. I believe that's unique to the 11. Because in uh, 50 some days and change, Peter is going to preach a sermon in Acts chapter 2 to a huge population, 13 different dialect groups of people who've come for Pentecost. And he's going to preach this sermon and 3,000 are going to be recorded as believing in Christ. And that's a, that's a very vitriolic sermon. He's saying, you killed Jesus. I mean, it's not how to win friends and influence people. I guarantee you, Peter did not, between the time he denied the Lord Jesus Christ and run away and hide, take a Dale Carnegie course and have the courage to preach that sermon. Something happened to him that's otherworldly. It's called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he was by Christ told, I will tell you what to say, and you'll remember everything I've taught you in these three years. That's a unique gift to the apostles. And so they do. And the thing explodes. So it's hidden from them, but they're going to remember he told them. And once the Holy Spirit indwells them, they will not forget it. And don't be so hard on these guys. I tend to be. Maybe you are too. Think of when you came to Christ. Did you figure it all out? Do you understand eternal security of believer, the assurance of your salvation? Can you sort through the doctrines of election, predestination, sanctification? Can you tell me where you are on the millennial schemes? Have you got it all figured out? And remember, we're going to see these guys one day. And we're all going to be proven wrong in the first nanosecond we walk into heaven of the views we held that were wrong. And we're going to fall on our face. I think that's why heaven is eternal. Because every time we see Jesus, we're going to fall on our face. And he's just picking us up one at a time. It's just going to take forever. Because <laughs> you see me falling. I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe you love me. I can't believe you forgave me. I can't believe you've forgiven me. We're just going to spend eternity waiting for Jesus to pick us back up. And after the first millennium, we finally look up for a while. 
Then he goes, okay, now I can talk to you. We're back on our face again. I mean, it's just gonna, it's gonna be that way. We will be so overwhelmed, the things of the earth will go completely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Well, the final journey then switches from the Samaria and Galilee region, south-southwest to Jericho, the blind beggar, verse 35, as Jesus was approaching Jericho. I should have a map and a picture. I do not, but Sea of Galilee looks like a little harp, more like a lake at the top. Jordan River comes down. The Dead Sea looks like something of a telephone receiver hanging below. Uh, To the east, you have what would be today Jordan and Syria. And to the west, you have what would be the Mediterranean Sea and the small sliver of land called Israel. And Jesus is coming from Galilee, south-southwest. He probably has crossed the Jordan at least once, if not several times, on what would be today's Jordan side. But in that day, it was not differentiated quite like we do today. And as you come south-southwest, before you go up to Jerusalem, Jericho is the way you'd walk by. There are international highways that any military person can tell you when you go into an unimproved, undeveloped area, you take your troops, your tanks, your armaments, your horses through the places that are easy to travel. You don't take them on the crags in the highlands. You take them where it's an easy place to move, and those become highways. And so Jesus is traveling down these soft ways, we would say, into Jericho. And in Jericho is where he meets the blind man. Verse 35, Jesus was approaching Jericho and a blind man sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this is about a nine, seven, six-mile walk, depending on where he's crossed the Jordan, where he comes into Jericho, and where he will end up in Jerusalem. Uh, To get a picture in that culture, in that context, I am 99% sure you've got thousands of people on this migratory pattern to go to Jerusalem. They always went this time of year anyway, but now we've got this new thing, this Christ, this Jesus crazy guy. Some believe him, some are still curious, some are critical of him. It has created a great interest in this particular trek to the the festivals that are happening in the city of Jerusalem. Don't miss the contrast. The rich ruler, self-made, has everything. The disciple, what about us? We left our family. We got nothing. And now we've got a blind, destitute beggar. Do not miss the context as we look at the story. Now, they identify him to the blind beggar as Jesus of Nazareth. I need to give you a little grammar style idiom lesson. It's an easy one. It's called a double entendre. Or some highbrows say entendre. A double entendre. A double entendre is if I said that window is a real pain. Okay, it's not just a pun, it's a double meaning. Or if I said two peanuts went into a bar, one was assaulted. You with me? Okay, that's a double entendre. Now these aren't humorous, these are illustrative. The ones we're going to look at are to make a deeper point than what meets the eye, pun intended, with a blind man. 
He's called Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth means two things. It means a shoot or a branch, first of all, is in Isaiah 11. From the tribe of Jesse, where David comes from, a shoot or a branch comes out, Isaiah 11, which is a reference to Christ. It also means to look over or to watch over. And when you go to Israel someday, you will go to near Nazareth. It's complicated to get into today. But Nazareth overlooks the Jezreel Valley, a beautiful, fertile, expansive valley, militarily critical to control, agriculturally rich beyond imagination in its production. And Nazareth is the, we would say, outlook. You can see all across the Jezreel Valley from Nazareth. So the double entendre is he's a shooter of branch, but he's also the one who's overlooking, if you will. So they say Jesus of Nazareth, wordplay, the branch, a tribe of Jesse, the son of David, or the one who's looking out. And there's where the looking starts to play with the blind man. The blind man does not call him Jesus of Nazareth. He says what? Son of David. This is new in the narrative. He's been called the son of man. He referred to himself. The crowds called him Jesus of Nazareth. And now this blind beggar calls him son of David. Have mercy on me. Now stay with me just a minute. First of all, to call him the son of David is his messianic confession. In other words, he believes this Jesus is really Messiah. And I'll show you why in a minute. Secondly, a blind man was a problem from time immemorial. No one had ever cured a blind person. If you remember John 9, my single favorite character in the entire scripture, John 9 is a blind man sitting by the side of the road, congenitally blind, and the disciples say to the Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus responds, neither his parents or he, but that the work of God, the glory of God might be revealed. And the guy is a pawn. He's an object lesson to the group. He doesn't say a word until later on. It's a great story if you read it sometime. Jesus creates a new pair of eyes for this congenitally blind person. By chapter 9, I believe it's verse 27, the Jews are giving this guy the third degree. Are you the same man? How did you get your sight? Who did it? Tell us a story. He's told him three different times. He gets greatly sarcastic with him. It's a delicious story. And he says, you want to become his disciples too? I've told you three times already. It's a wonderful story. And they get really mad at him. But at one point, he, the, the, his accusers say, it has never been heard before that a blind man received his sight. Why is that important? Because cure of the blind was a miracle reserved for Messiah. Many times in the book of Isaiah, we read about the Messiah will give hearing to the deaf and will give sight to the blind. And no one had ever seen this done before or ever witnessed it. That's why they're giving him the third degree in John 9. Because if in fact he was congenitally blind, and if in fact this guy gave him a new set of eyes, he's Messiah. And they've got to reform their entire system, and they don't want to do that. They're threatened by this Jesus. He's crazy. He's going to wreck the system. They like their system. Back to our story here in Jericho. Same issue. A blind person being healed by someone is a miracle reserved for Messiah. No one had ever done this. This guy's on the side of the road. We don't know how long he's been blind. As a child, recently we don't know. 
Now the text says, those who led the way, verse 39, there's a crowd, they're crushing in. If you're in the airport or you're uh, starting a 10K run or you're in some real jammed group of people all going somewhere, getting into a concert, getting into a game, and you're elbow to elbow and your personal space is completely invaded and all of a sudden somebody stops, what happens? And the text is powerful and poignant how Jesus responds to it. Now, his cry is also of importance. First of all, he yells out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And we would say, and it would be a fair idiom when they tell him, verse 39, sternly to be quiet. We would paraphrase that in our lingo, shut up! And what does he do? All the more cries out louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. It's the same cry of Jesus on the cross. The same word. It's the same word of the woman Revelation who shrieks and howls at childbirth. Verse 40, Jesus responds, and Jesus stopped. And commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, they questioned him, what do you want me to do for you? Stop there for just a second. If Jesus asked you that question today, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer it? Be careful. And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him and glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. He stops, literally the text says he stands. It's a position of authority. He's, he's now, the crowd behind him is sort of dominoing and crushing into him. And he's just stopped. He says, bring that guy to me. What do you want from me? I want to regain my sight. Now, the blind man's answer, and Luke records it, has more than meets the eye. And I mean that intentionally as a pun. First of all, he calls him courier, which means Lord, which is just a common expression of Lord, Sir, Master. But the way he ties it together uh, with his son of David and Lord, I want to receive my sight, this guy gets the Davidic confession, the Davidic messianic link. In other words, the blind man knows this is the true Messiah. The blind man completely believes in this Jesus. He's not Jesus if he can. Jesus, I've heard rumor about you. He says, son of David, you're of the lineage of Messiah. I know you can do this. Will you give me my sight? Have mercy on me. Now our text in English fumbles it a little bit because it's a hard word to render. Mine says, regain my sight in verse 41. Others say, recover my sight. I want to see. Another says, see again. Another says, receive my sight. Because the English has a hard time rendering the word. Let me give you a hint. However your English Bible renders it, the word regain my sight in verse 41 and in in 42, receive your sight, are almost the same word in Greek letter per letter. Or to say it this way, we might paraphrase, Lord, I want to see. He says, you can see. Lord, I want to have my sight. He says, you have your sight. The word is so closely aligned in the grammar. The point is, whatever he asked is what God gave him. Whether he was congenitally blind or blind from an 
an illness. We do not know. The story does not tell us that. The point of the story is not about the congenital blindness, as in John 9. The point of the story is a miracle occurs that only Messiah can do. And the blind man knew who Jesus was. So, faith from a blind man. The rich man has everything and can't get it. The disciples, what's in it for me? The blind man totally gets it. The destitute, throwaway, side-of-the-road guy has heard rumors of this man, Messiah, heard rumors of the stories of what this Jesus has done, and he believes. What's he got to lose? His one shot in life. Jesus of Nazareth is walking by. Have mercy on me, son of David. All that I've heard about you must be true. Give me my sight. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you, literally. And again, we have another double entendre. The word looked here is the same word. When he says, regain sight, you have sight. Jesus is breaking the bread and distributing loaves and fishes. He looks up to heaven and gives thanks. And so the double entendre here is, or you might call it a triple entendre, a blind man asking God for sight, and he says, you have sight, look up. I'll give you the physical miracle. That isn't the issue. The issue is your salvation. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you because you see. Absent vision, you see. The rich man with everything, the disciples maudlin, what about us? The blind man with nothing gets it. And as I've reminded you again and again in Luke, every miracle, every disease, every illness is a picture of not merely our physical condition, but our spiritual condition. And we are all blind. We're all lame. We're all deaf. We're all lepers. We're all idolaters. We're all immoral. All of us. We're born blind. And this man is given the gift of salvation. Your faith has saved you. The disciples have an incomplete view. The rich man has a confused view. And the blind man has the best sight in the story. What's hidden from the self-made man is disclosed to the destitute man. I don't know how many times, and I don't think it's an exaggeration, I really don't, to say that in the years of doing this thing, I've heard hundreds, if not thousands, of comments like, I can never believe in a God who fill in the blank. I can never believe in a God who allows war. I can never believe in a God who lets aid ravage Africa. I can never believe in a God who allows children to be abused. I can never believe in a God who lets war and evil dictators, and on and on we could go. And I've had these conversations with people. I can never believe in a God who fill in the blank. What have we just done? We've defined God in our image. I can't believe in a God who doesn't play the way I think God should play. Well, never mind this sin condition. Never mind a fallen, corrupt world. Never, never mind that evil exists and he allows that for his own purpose and design far beyond our comprehension. Never mind that he loves the likes of you and me. Ha, put that all aside. I can't believe in a God who won't fill in the blank. Well, you know what I want to say? Then don't, you idiot. No, I can't say that, but that's the flesh side of me. You dope. You're in the same condition and he loves you. 
You're that unmoral person. You're the one who perpetrated AIDS. You're the one who's blind. You're the evil one. You're the one who caused war. And he loves you. That's what I wish I could say. That's why evangelism is not my gift. You see, whenever we say, I can't believe in God because of X, or I won't do this because of God, God, I won't, I'm not going to be close to you anymore, and you fold your mental arms and legs because you haven't played fair with me, you've just fallen into the trap of making God in your image. And notice what happens when the blind man sees. He follows him, he glorifies God, and the audience praises God. That's the response when God interrupts a life. You follow him, you glorify him, and people who see it give praise to him. Luther said we are all mere beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. May I suggest we are all merely blind beggars showing other blind beggars where to beg. bread. We see by faith, not by sight. We see through a glass dimly, through a fogged mirror, through an obscured, fallen perspective of life in God. Because we make God in our image, the way we think he should operate, the prayers we think he should answer, fine, well, and good they may be, we still have a problem with trying to make God in our image rather than worshiping him for who he is because we're blind and destitute and poor. And it's amazing that they are the ones that get it. And the self-made person has a hard time. Because when you have nothing, you're looking for something. When you have, quote, everything or some things, it gets in the way of who this Jesus is. Until you and I understand how desperate we were how desperate we are, we will never begin to understand how blessed we are in him. And quit comparing against our self-made concoctions of how we think God should deal with us. I want you to close your eyes, and I'm going to read from a prayer I heard years ago. It's a very short prayer. And with this, we will end. May all your expectations be frustrated. May all your plans be thwarted. May all your desires be withered into nothingness, that you may experience the powerlessness and the poverty of a child and sing and dance and in the compassion of a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit and who loves you indescribably. Amen.